I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Juliet Grames. Maybe you're not supposed to pick favorites because it would be like secretly choosing a favorite child or aunt or uncle or between your cats or dogs or whatever pet you have, but I'll let you in on a not well-kept secret around our office. Juliet Grames' debut novel, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, is one of my favorite titles, and I'm so happy to share this episode with you. Our titular character is, you'll find, a woman who got things done. As Juliet writes, Stella Fortuna was tough. Life had tried to take her down and Stella Fortuna had resisted. Each bad thing that happened to her only made her more stubborn, more retaliatory, less compromising. Stella allowed for no weakness in herself and she had no tolerance for weakness in others. Except, of course, her mother, who required special dispensations. And so this is a book about Stella but it's also about her mother, Asunta, and her father, Tony, and her brothers and sisters, and the family Stella herself has when she marries Carmelo Maglieri. If it seems like a lot of people to keep track of, don't worry, there's a family tree just after the table of contents. And it's a story about Yevoli, a remote Calabrian mountain town, and about coming to America and being an immigrant and learning to be American. It's about families, histories, cultures. Juliet joined us in the office to record this episode and brought along a very special guest, her six-month-old son, Carlos. We're proud to publish Juliet's novel, and we're very proud to give Carlos his podcast debut. Stella and the Fortuna family's story is it turns charming, messy, shocking, tragic, and scandalous, just as all family stories are. But what makes this novel unique is the combination of telling the sheer scope of the lives contained within while treating them with deep intimacy. Stella and her family become your family. You root for them, you love them, you scorn them, you hate them, you are disgusted by them, and yet you are bonded indelibly to them. The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna is available now in hardcover and ebook from Echo and in digital audio from Harper Audio. So joining us in the office today, we have Juliet Grames, author of the fabulous debut novel, Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. And we also have her baby, Carlos. And this is our first episode of the award-winning podcast series, Harper Academic Calling, with a baby live in our office. So Michael and I, Carlos is smiling and laughing, and we are completely thrilled. So if you hear a baby, don't be alarmed. It is the newest addition to our podcast family here at HarperCollins. Yes, you are. Uh, So, Juliet, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us (laughs) both. We're really excited to be here. It's Carlos's first visit to HarperCollins, so it's a big, big day for him. Big day for him and his podcast debut. Yeah, absolutely. So, we are absolutely honored. So, I have to say, I and I know that you know this, but I adore this novel so much. I adore Stella so much. There are so many things that I love about her as a character and love about the novel as a whole. 
maybe one of the most logical places to start for people who are listening is just for you to talk to us a little bit about what the seven or eight deaths of Stella Fortuna is about. Sure. So um, this is a novel. It is fiction, but it is very heavily inspired by my grandmother's life story. Um, She emigrated from Italy to the United States in the 1930s, and I grew up with her. We have a very tight-knit family, and she was, you know, a major caretaker during my childhood. So I was always very fascinated by her life story, um, particularly the fact that she did have... uh, many near-death experiences over the course of her very long life. She actually only passed away last summer at age 98. So, um, you know, as I became, as I got older, I started to realize how extraordinary these near misses were, how odd it is that they all happened to one person. And um, I became increasingly fascinated by her, especially because she had this uh, brain trauma when I was five years old and um, and afterwards um, endured a lobotomy in order to save her life. And as a result, she, she couldn't really talk about her own story anymore. Um, so I kind of wrote the novel in an attempt to Invent what her what her life might have been like, or what life might have been like for a person like her who went through things that she did. Mm-hmm. I think it's the fourth sentence of of the book, and it, and it says other people would underestimate Sola Fortuna during her long life, and not one of them didn't end up regretting it. And I think that was the sentence that I remember when I first read it. I just got this huge smile on my face, and I was like, "This is a character that I will absolutely completely fall in love with." And I do. I love Stella from the beginning of the novel. I love her through to the end of the novel. I am proud of her. I root for her. I cheer her on. I get really bummed out every time I go back and yeah. sort of see the brokenness that happens uh. throughout her life in a variety of ways. One of the things that strikes me so much about her is how formidable she is as a person. She is someone who just refuses to go away. So what was it like kind of creating that sort of stubborn character, that sort of character that just refuses, adamantly refuses at every single turn to to give up and to go away or to diminish herself in some way? I just, so I told you that this is fiction and then I told you how heavily inspired by fact it is. The thing about my grandmother's lobotomy is that uh, what we really lost after this operation was her personality. Mm -hmm. Um, She lived for another 30 years afterward, but I... What I know about my grandmother's real personality is from before I was five years old. Um, after that, I, I just have no clue who she was. Uh, she was completely medically altered. So um, Stella had to be completely invented. Mm-hmm. And all I knew about Stella was that despite this really terrible luck, she kept persevering. She was so stubborn. Um, and I had to figure out why. And really arriving at the answer to your question why like how did she become so stubborn and why why did she become that way came over the course of trying to figure out how to make the plot work within the framework of what I knew had happened to her during the book and in the end there was just no other way this woman had she couldn't ever give up and um, despite her ob- the obstacles she faced and I will also tell you that so the first half of the novel is set in Galabria which is the toe of the Italian boot, the very southernmost part kind of that's kicking Sicily into the Mediterranean Sea. And the Calabrese are um, 
historically one of the poorest regions of Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, They were the subject to Spanish colonialism Mm -hmm. for 400 years before they were eventually subsumed into what Italy became a country um, in the 19th century. And they have a, uh, this indomitable culture, personal culture about stubbornness themselves. I think because they were always ruled by different over, um, over lords and ladies for, for so long, for 3,000 years, they, it's a very fertile and beautiful land and as a result was always a subject of, uh, very attractive to raiders and pirates and colonialists and empires. And So um, what the Calabrese have is a very rich tradition in kind of folk um Proverbs, uh, advice about how to live your life. And one of the things the, the Calabrese are most proud of is their stubbornness. So um, the way you say stubborn in Italian is testa dura, which means hard-headed. But in Calabria, they, they say gabatost is the Calabrese dialect. And, and most people um, in Italy uh, will tell you, oh, Calabrese, they're so testa dura. And if you go to Calabria, they say, oh, yeah, the Calabrese were very gabatost. <laughs> so it's something we're all proud of. And in, and in a lot of ways, that serves her well. I mean, it gets her out, it gets her into a lot of situations, I guess, but it also gets her out of, of her share of yeah. heart scrapes and mixes, too. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you know what you want, and you can fight for it till the better end, you'll usually get it. The problem is, when you're fighting for something because you've been fighting for it for so long and you can't stop fighting for it even when it's not good for you anymore. And I... I in the course of researching this book, I interviewed a lot of people. Um, you know, in, in addition to book research, I wanted to do a lot of oral history and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, aggregating stories of other nonagenarians who grew up in her village or around there. And and this is a recurring theme. It's like sometimes you need to stick to your guns because you ju- you don't have anything else. Um, especially, you know, growing up in the 20s and 30s during what was the Depression here, um, between these two wars, when when Italy was so massively transformed and uh, these very poor villages were kind of forced into modernity by uh, Mussolini connecting them to the world, by, um, you know, their men being impressed into military service or being forced away across the world to, uh, you know, work abroad in order to make ends meet. They... There was just, uh, you know, not much to fight for. So sometimes all you're fighting for is your right to fight for things. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 um, so there are a lot of, I collected a lot of stories about a lot of stubborn people, you know, stubborn, you know, to, um, in spite, in spite of what was best for them. Yeah. Yeah. And the setting, I think, is something that we should, we should talk about a little bit because half of the story, uh, sort of the second half of the story, I guess, um, is set in the U.S., either in New York or in Connecticut. But the first half of the story is set in Italy, in a small village. Um, so what was that research process like, going to find out about, you know, sort of kind of everyday things of fiction writing, you know, literal setting, what it looked like, how to describe it, the people there, um, the attitudes that developed from that sort of environment? So research started in a very traditional kind of, you know, bookish way. I love to read. Um, I've been a book editor for a long time, but I, I'm a closet amateur historian is what I, you know, I, I kind of 
my alternate universe is I would have been a historian. Um, so I do a lot of that on my own for fun. And I wrote my first draft having interviewed a ton of people here in the States and having read a bajillion books and you know visited Ellis Island and mm-hmm. all that. And there came to a point in the draft that I just felt I didn't um, have the the authority that I needed to be able to write the, these passages authentically. I, I didn't know how I was going to capture the 1920s in Yevoli in this tiny village. It just you know doesn't exist anymore. But I um, I tried. So I, t- I took a leave of absence and I went and I lived in Yevoli with total strangers um, who are now dear friends. A retired postman and his wife put me up and uh, we... They showed me everything. I, I would write in research in the mornings, and then in the afternoons we'd drive all over. We, um, I went to the municipal halls to get to pull family records. Uh, I learned, I interviewed a lot of people there too. I mean, it was really um, an incredible, immersive cultural learning experience, especially because it has changed a ton in the last hundred years, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's changed as much as some other places in the world have. It's still a very um, geographically remote uh, kind of place at the top of a mountain um, with only one road leading anywhere else. Um, it's still very steep streets where uh, people kind of have to climb, almost climb up the hill to go to church um, in the evenings, which a lot of people go to mass every night, mm-hmm. um, people still raise and slaughter pigs once a year. Uh, so that you know, I was there during the winter pig slaughter. It's almost like a religious rite. It's so carefully and worshipfully done, and and uh, everyone has a role. And so, so that was cool. I really feel like, you know, I don't know exactly the desperation of the 1920s, of course, but I did get to see over the last hundred years what that place has become, and mm-hmm. I, I, you know. I feel like I got as close to Stella's experience as I possibly could have. Mm-hmm. And part of being there and learning about it is also culture, right? And one of the things that is that comes up quite often in this book is sort of the confluence of a deep, predominantly Catholic faith and sort of rendering of Christianity, but also some sort of good old mountain, I guess, or country folklore event, yeah. particularly with the evil eye. Yeah. Uh, and I know you love to talk about the evil eye, oh, so please please tell us everything you know well, about the evil the evil eye. Because it because it is it, it is to me one of the things that's really interesting is that thinking about what a lot of these different characters believe in, there is truly this this sort of mingling, right? At, at one point, you know, a, a baby is born, and you know, there is an incantation to banish the evil eye, and as much as there is sort oh, of yeah. this insistence on, you know, kind of the the proper or more formal um, traditional Catholic belief. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I will tell you if you go to Calabria, um, it's a real company town in terms of you know the papal authority and I mean when I was living there we watched um we watched the rosary every uh, afternoon after lunch on tv and I you know it's people identify deeply as catholics yep. um and at the same time I grew up within a you know Calabrese family uh, my mother performed these incantations over me when I was a baby um I learned them when I was the right age uh, I can't teach them to you because obviously it would ruin the magic but I mean she learned those from from her grandmother and and they are this kind of uh, infusion of invoking invoking various Catholic um, religious figures, but also obviously it's it's a sort of hex banishment. Uh, what what she does, and different villages have different 
forms. Sometimes you're um, chanting an incantation and there's a, an ablution with a drop of oil or a bowl of water or um, often, you know, there's some kind of piece of metal or bone object used to pierce the evil eye or like this necklace I'm wearing I wear all the time is, you know, I'm, I'm not religious at all. I'm just deeply superstitious and I acknowledge that. But the thing that I think is cool about Calabria is uh, everyone is, is both and there this there's no, um, you know, kind of cognitive dissonance about it. And I think partially that's a product of, of this incredible history of the region, which is incredibly multicultural. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, I mentioned colonialism earlier, but, mm-hmm. but Calabria has been subject to so many foreign rules, um, some of them more benign than others, and a lot of them, uh, you know, people introduced their their own religious beliefs and their own ethnic cultures, and they layered one on top of another. So you have... Um, uh, you know, it was um, Magna Gratia back during high Greek, classical Greek times, and the Odyssey is set in Calabria. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of, if you drive around Calabria, you'll see a lot of places are um, still named after the, uh, you'll recognize the names right from the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later the, the Byzantine Greeks came and they introduced um, their form of Christianity, and there are still pockets of, of Lower Calabria that are uh, Eastern Rite. And that um, where the Basilian monk movement actually originated in the Aspromonte down in the south of Calabria. And then, of course, we had uh, Arab rule from the 800s through the 1200s in um, the Emirate of Sicily. So there's a lot of traces of Muslim um, religious rite that occur throughout things like um, the evil eye incantation um, is really similar to what you might see in parts of the Maghreb. Uh, which I think is really fascinating. And then, of course, the Normans came and turned to Catholic again. But one thing we also have, um, it's not as clearly known, is um, is a crypto-Judaic tradition throughout mm-hmm. Calabria. And there's actually, uh, there's some... Um, research societies that believe that a huge portion of Calabria was at one point Jewish, especially around the 1250s when uh, the Norman Emperor Frederick II basically gave an amnesty to Jews to move um, into his uh, around where his castle was at Nicastro, which mm-hmm. is a, a city mentioned yep. often in the book. It's mm-hmm. the closest city to where Stella lives. And, uh, and so um, there's a, a revival movement now of Jewish traditions in especially Catanzaro, the region where Stella grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this is really fascinating, but there's a, a rabbi, an American rabbi named Barbara Aiello, who is um, an Italian-American who has gone back to a town called Serra Stretta, which is in this region, and she's helping uh, people discover crypto-Judaic traditions that they either have in their families, like where they were still practicing Passover rites that had been obscured as Christian rites, or even where they were they were Jewish, and they knew they were Jewish, but they hadn't um, let anyone else know and have been passing down these traditions for a thousand years. So, um, so it's really fascinating to see this fusion of different religious cultures and how it kind of bears out um, in other aspects of, of the culture as well, like food, like culinary mm-hmm. tradition is is um, pretty interesting. Um, the Calabrese eat a lot of chili peppers and eggplant, which are both thought to have been introduced by the Arabs. And um, 
and also in uh, forms of um, economics. So like there's this, um, it's now dead, but for a very long time there was a cottage tradition of silkworm farming mm -hmm. among women in these mountain towns. And uh, during the summer when there wasn't really much to harvest, they would grow what they called silk seeds. They would hatch the silkworm eggs larvae. Um, uh, they'd kind of stash the eggs against their chests at, like their own babies and, and warmly hatch them and then raise the worms lovingly and, and spin the silk. And that's how they spent the summer months. And that entire industry was introduced by the Arabs as well. So you just get um, a lot of different layers of stuff mm -hmm. uh, because of all this multiculturalism. Something else that I think I really love about this novel is that while there is obviously a focus on Stella since she is the titular character of this book, this is, I think in a lot of ways, a book that tells the story of women. And, it's, and so you say at one point, you say, a woman who grows to adulthood is often a damaged thing. Live life stories end in decrepitude, resentments, and squandered opportunities, in crumbling faculties, unrecoupable disappointments, in loneliness. Uh, this, the ugliness of reality, is the gap in the story of the two Stellas. And this is a spoiler, the rest of the sentence, so if you haven't read the book yet, stop listening and then join us again. This is the gap in the story of the two Stellas, the first who died at the age of three and a half, and the second who wouldn't die at all. And while, okay, the end of that sort of turns towards Stella herself, but this is also a story about her mother, Asunta. Uh, it is a story about her sister. It is a story about um, all of um, the female children that exist throughout this family and those that they become friends with in various parts of the world. Why was it important to make this, in some ways, a very matrilineal story? You know, it's so funny because I never set out with that agenda. That just happened. Okay. Uh, I... I had so many parts of Stella's story I wanted to tell, and a lot of them fell out of my outline because the book was would have just been, you know, eight thousand pages if I'd written the whole thing. Um, but in the end, I'm really glad that it came out this way because I think what happens with especially immigrant narratives, um, because of the way immigration laws and restriction laws worked around the 19th and 20th centuries in America, at least. Uh, it was mostly men who were coming over mm -hmm. um, to work, and it was only through their visas that that women and children. Um, and of course, this varies from country to country because of you know the Exclusion Acts kept whole populations of people out entirely. But anyway, that's a different kettle of fish. But um, so so what happens is when we're talking about our immigrant forefathers, it's always forefathers just mm -hmm. by default because they're the trailblazers. And um, when you take that narrative. And the fact is that the women um, at home, where the origin point, had really equally, I think, interesting stories that get dropped out of um, this, the American identity, American immigrant identity. So I'm really happy that I had a chance to kind of dig into like what happens when there are no men in a very patriarchal society, and uh, you know, do things fall apart when um, you don't have anyone to make these choices? <laughs> For you, you don't. You're not allowed to buy or own your own land. Uh, where do you live? And I, I mean, like I said, that just all came out because I had to, situationally, because of the plot. But I'm, I'm glad that it did. And um, as for you know the difference between the, the two Stellas and uh, the perfection of 
sorry for the spoiler again, but uh, the, the perfection of the dead baby Stella, who basically never got to live a, a full life, mm-hmm. and who therefore never got to be damaged by being a female in this world, mm-hmm. versus the Stella who did. I, I am personally fascinated by the idea of um, kind of the privilege that our culture places on youth and innocence in women. And, um, and uh, I've, I've heard this called, I once edited a book called The Lolita Effect, which described, you know, this phenomenon of really prizing um, basically girl children for their childishness and their innocence and, and the most beautiful way a woman can be is basically this untouched innocent child. And um, what happens when a woman has to make these incredibly difficult decisions to keep her family alive um, in these harsh climates? She becomes unattractive in the eyes of the world. And uh, so that does fascinate me. Um, the idea that Stella, our, our Stella, the survivor, becomes unattractive or less perfect because she fights back and, and because she has such a strong will to survive. And um, and so I'm very interested in kind of restoring uh, respect to the stories of women with, with uglier, quote-unquote uglier, life stories um, and the things that they did to survive in, in order to get old. Yeah, because one of the things that strikes me about it is that it's, and one of the things that I love about about the novel as a whole is that it is very real, I think, in its representation of, I think, all of this sort of individual players, but also of this of this family as a collective. Because something else that this novel is, as much as it is a story of a singular life, I think one of its strengths is that it is the story of at least two families, uh, if if not more, and it's. It doesn't sort of shy away from the uglier, the darker parts of what it is to be a family. Because this book goes places that are unsettling and uncomfortable, and you just kind of have to put it down and walk away from it for a little bit before you come back to it, I think, at certain times. But it's it's a very real, I think, a very real and accurate depiction of, of what it is to exist as as a family and to have a messy family story. And to not try and neaten it up or make it shiny in, in any way. Yeah, I think you're exactly right that that almost all family stories are messy. Mm-hmm. And I think we mostly don't acknowledge them because the problem the problem with addressing what may have happened to um, to our mothers or grandmothers or you know fathers or grandfathers um, is that we loved and revered these people or we respect them and often. Um, to really irrigate the wound of, of what went wrong um, to someone else in their family. You have to acknowledge that this person you did love and revere was not as perfect as you would want them to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and especially when you're, when you're talking about a marginalized population or a, an impoverished population, an undereducated population, like the one that I was writing about at the, at the beginning of this book, um, and I'm personally very proud to come from a, a family that has these poor origins. I think it speaks volumes to the, you know, the goal of the American dream that my grandmother never learned to read and, and you know, here I am writing a book about how she never learned to read. But the, the um, I think that's a, a neat thing about the American dream. But the fact is that when you do, when you do have a, um, a really poor, uneducated, resourceless 
family situation like this, you can have some really terrible things happen, and you can have a lot of people with no recourse to any modes of justice, mm-hmm. um, even if they would want that recourse. So um, it's definitely something I personally feel is worth flushing out in many cases to kind of understand our forebears and um, really honor what they went through in order to keep us alive and bring us life. Um, but in some cases, it is too painful to really, uh, forgive me for using the phrase, but to really irrigate that family wound. Sometimes yeah. it's best to let it lie. It's a question of when, like when it's valuable enough to restore someone's uh, legacy by telling the truth about them mm-hmm. versus when that will hurt too many people. Yeah, and it, it, it's something too because I guess the sort of the, the twin thing that that telling the stories of women makes me think about in this book is also how the layers of this family, of the Fortuna family, are sort of unraveled in secrets, and it's often secrets that women are are willing to keep. And that sort of shows itself in, in a variety of ways, and I think one of the, one of the main ways that that is shown is in the, the character of, of Stella's father, Tony Fortuna. Tony... Tony reminds me, he's a monster, I think. Yeah, Um, that's fair. And he is the kind of monster who I think is willing to indulge all manner of improper behaviors in himself, but not really in others, or at least not in members of his own family. I guess two things. One, what was it like to, to, to think about Tony Fortuna and all of his sort of shades of monstrosity, but then also thinking sort of how his presence reverberates with other characters. Yeah. It is, I mean, he, he is technically the man of the house, whether he's there or not, but it, whether he is there or in absentia, he is someone who is echoed in, in other characters. Yeah. So I guess, um, first talk, I guess, a little bit about Tony himself, and then what he's what he's like, what his effect is like on on everyone else. I am grateful to have a chance to talk about Tony because he is um, he's a complex situation. Yeah. I um, I have been a crime fiction editor now for a decade, and um, in the course of that time, I have read a lot about criminal profiling and about different um, psychological conditions or types, mm-hmm. and I. I knew as I was writing this, I knew what Tony did, um, and I had to figure out why he would do it. Mm-hmm. And as you say, there's a, a, an array of choices he's willing to make that uh, didn't fit into any criminal profile that I was familiar with. And um, at the same time, I knew what he was going to do um, in the course of the story. Um, the thing I was able to figure out eventually is that as a character he just has no respect for life of anyone else he's a that that's his main problem is that he in his own stubborn way like Stella has needed to survive against odds and for him that manifested as having no respect for anyone else's life Mm -hmm. at all in any situation you put him in um he entertains himself um, at other people's expense um he goes after his own comfort at other people's expense um, that's those are very like you know kind of mild ways of putting his priorities. But he, um, but that's that's what I can say about him. And and the other thing that I learned was I had to figure out why he has no respect for life or what so damaged him. And um, and f- figuring out his own 
kind of traumatic childhood situation, and then also reading a ton about the experience of the soldiers in World War One yeah. in Italy uh, was formative, and I understood where a monster came from. It was really clear. Um, when he, a, a boy who could grow up so abused and uh, impoverished by his own family, and then to move into the crucible of the war in the Austrian Alps that was World War One in Italy, I am just surprised that there weren't even more completely broken um, or evil individuals yeah. who came out of it. And, and um, you know, World War One in Italy is actually very difficult to find uh, much information about. I had to read far and wide and deep uh, to get what I did. But um, Mussolini didn't want to live with the legacy of how many uh, Italian soldiers had been sent to die essentially for no reason. And he, he it, uh, as an act of propaganda during the beginning of, of fascism in Italy, he kind of um, exercised any mention of it from the Italian uh you know, public consciousness. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these stories are lost. And even when I went to the village, um, to Yevoli and to surrounding villages, and tried to ask people what they remembered about World War One, I, I uh, got a lot of people trying to redirect me to talking about World War Two, which is of course more recent. Right. So more people, living memory for more people. But um, but really, there's just no memory um, that was al- allowed to flourish uh, of of what people went through there. It was a really Horrific war. It was um, mm-hmm. bloodier than the Somme. The the entirety of the Italian war, moment for moment, was bloodier than the Somme until the last quarter of the war. Um, and the you know bodies per uh, square inch of of kind of mountain tundra um, is really shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what you have to think about from a man of Antonio Fortuna's generation is that he was probably impressed into service in some form. Mm-hmm. Um, he may have been from an incredibly impoverished background, and if he was unlucky and he had a really uh, abusive or problematic family, he might have had a lot of monsters going into this, um, creating a fringe personality like the one I, I found that he was over the course of creating this fictional world. Um but uh, a lot of men like Antonio Fortuna, or much better men than Antonio Fortuna, had those backgrounds. And they also were in charge of families. They had uh, unilateral control over the finances and uh, life choices of all of the women who um, were under their ages, so their, their wives and their daughters. And, and um, so it's not surprising to see that the for the fictional Fortunas are not the only family that have these kinds of stories mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. And Tony is also in some ways super traditional in spite of his proclivities, uh-huh. shall, shall we say. Yeah. Shall we say? <laughs> Try not to ruin too many things. Yeah. And, f- and I guess another way of reading sort of how all of these characters interact is through looking and thinking about culturally ascribed traditional gender roles, what mm-hmm. is masculine, what is feminine. And there are plenty of chances for plenty of these characters in this book to subvert those sort of myths, I guess, or fictions that, that a culture creates for how people should should act. Because in, in some ways, Carmelo, Stella's husband, he's not as monstrous as Tony, but in his own way, he is he is a kind of monster. You have Tony's own sons who 
subvert what he thinks you know a man should be especially a, a man in an immigrant family who has recently come to america and in stella's stella and carmela's own family there are also men who sort of defy those expectations but women also subvert them as well thinking about when you know tony just leaves um for chunks of time um to try and make his way in america um asunta is becomes a woman who has to do a lot of things um, for herself and her family to keep everyone alive and together. So too does Stella in her own way. And Tina, of course, we haven't we haven't talked about Tina yet. But Tina, Tina's sort of subversion comes, I don't think, by choice. Um, because I think the one thing that Stella's sister Tina really wants is to be a mother, and that is, is denied her. How would you say that gender roles are prescribed and, you know, curiously subverted throughout this book. The thing about gender roles that's so interesting within a patriarchy is that the male, male-dominated patriarchal rule only kind of works with the agreement, not the agreement, but the, um, the participation of, of women. Um, and of course, women don't have a huge amount of choice, but then you also have Within the family, there are women like Stella with no respect for the patriarchy whatsoever or any gender roles. You know, Stella does not want to get married. Stella hates mm-hmm. her father, has no respect for him, and will tell you that. Yeah. Um, and uh, is not charmed by the idea of being a bride or of having children. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, loves things that are considered traditionally female arts, like sewing and uh, and you know silk craft and things like that. So for Stella, her identity doesn't have to do with what people want her identity to be as a woman. However, her sister Tina, who's only a year and a half younger and raised in the same household, devoutly observes all of the kind of the rigorous gender role rules. She wants to be a wife and mother. She believes it is a sin against God to disrespect your father, um, who is given divine authority over you. And um, and so you know you talked about how. Uh, some of the secrets that are kept in the text have to do with the cooperation of the women, mm-hmm. and and so that that's a um, a disconnect there. Whether or not uh, you know Stella would tell you there's no reason to keep her father's secrets, and Tina would tell you that there's every reason to keep her father's secret, and the family can't function um, if if they're let out. Yeah. So I I do think that's fascinating. I also think it's fascinating how um, immigration was such a huge factor in the Italian South. And um, it really did dismantle patriarchal structure because for a long period of time, all of the men were missing. There was a time uh, in the 19-teens and 20s when um, between 30 and 40% of households were documented as not having a cop remaining a male head. Mm-hmm. And um, at least in, in Yevoli, even the birth certificates are constructed under the name of a capo that goes back generations. It's not even an individual identity to have a birth certificate. It's a family identity. So this is a really uh, the deeply entrenched problem, you know, to, to have the form of a family or, or to say that you have a family, but it doesn't take the form that a family has taken for a thousand years. Um, and then women have to be able to do the physical labor um, that they've always done, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but which has never paid them money. Um, it's only paid them in kind. Yeah. Um, as you see, you know, Stella and Tina 
picking olives in order to bring home just a you know a quarter of a bottle of olive oil or you know things like that. Um, so there are new challenges. Uh, women have to get creative to kind of make make ends meet um, in this brave new world. Um, and they also have to make decisions on their own, which is something Asunta, a very traditional woman, really can't do. She doesn't trust herself to make decisions for her daughters about who they should marry, about you know acquiring the land, even about she can't even write a letter to yeah. tell her husband what she wants or doesn't want because she's not able to read and write. So, um, so it does become very complicated. And I also think it's interesting how um, this is more of a pet theory that I haven't explored with a good research. But um, as you may have heard, Italians uh, really worship our mothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wonder if that mother worship came out of this generation where mm-hmm. um, you had a lot of uh, sons and daughters at home with only their moms. Their dads were completely missing. They saw the hardships their mothers went through to keep the families together. And then they emigrate here um, to the States. And it becomes, oh, Italians love their mothers. But, uh, but then you also have the first generation born here that isn't as tied to um, or has very different interpretations of like what it means to be a man versus what it means to be a woman than um, than Stella and Tina's generation did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it's that idea that is also sort of inescapable about this novel is that it is it is an immigration story. You have a family who is coming coming to America, starting a life in America piecemeal, um, because Tony comes first on a few occasions by himself. There is a snafu, which is how Stella almost dies another time. And then Stella, her sister, um, her, one of her brothers, and her mother come. And so we know, like, there's, there's a moment, one of the moments that I love most in this book is when they are, when Stella and, and Tina and Asunta are on the boat, and they're coming over, they come over on Christmas Eve, they are coming into the harbor and they see the Statue of Liberty. And, it, and it's the first time. And for me, my family came through, my mom's, and I think, I think my dad's too, came through Ellis Island. And it is, it is rare, I think, sometimes for, for families to still have documentation. I don't know if my dad has um, any on his side, but I know my mom has some for her parents. And so when I read that, I will never forget this. I read it. In, I read it. I think in November of last year, and I was like, okay. So I went and I looked up um, on the Ellis Island immigration database um, on their website. You know, you can see ships manifest, and I found my grandparents, and I never knew those grandparents. Yeah. My grandfather on my mom's side passed away well before I was born. Um, my grandmother uh, passed away three months after I was born, so I never got to know either of them. But it was really quite something to see on a computer screen part, and it, maybe, too, it's because our office is down here, so like you just have to walk down the street and you can see it. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was really kind of amazing to sort of see this, to know that I have a connection to something that is literally just across the river from where I come to work five days a week. Mm-hmm. And so to imagine this family completely ill-prepared since some of the children are in short pants in December in New York to sort of imagine what it's like for these people to build a new life someplace else for the sake of betterment for the sake of their progress for the sake of their success for the sake of their happiness even if happiness might be a sort of questionable Mm. kind of or fraught concept for them once, once they immigrate there had to be sort of 
some imaginative work involves sort of coming up with realizing what that experience is like for the for the first time. Um, so what was the process of writing that part of the story, the immigration part of the story? What was that like? You know, for me, it sort of started, I think visiting Ellis Island is, it's something I would encourage anyone to do. And if you don't have geographic access, they do have a, a great online, um, mm -hmm. you know, presence, as you say. But, but even if you didn't have family come through there to see those records, um, and the photos of people waiting in lines for admission, it's, it's flooring and it's a reminder of a time when our barriers were more permeable, um, and when there was an opportunity to be an American and, and that people, um, what they had to go through to do it. And, and uh, the fact that it was actually easier for our ancestors at that point than it is now to become an American, it's really worth reminding ourselves of that. Um, but I think for me it did start kind of the, the idea to write this book, to really set it down, it was something I had been toying with pretty much all my life, but the summer of 2014 was my first time that I, I took a summer Friday I you know, to work in publishing in New York City and we get Friday afternoons off and I went to Ellis Island and I found my great-grandfather there and I hadn't known that he came in through Ellis Island, I had heard alternate family theories and a, a lot of men came again and again and again, like Antonio does in the book, yeah. um, because they thought they would eventually get to go home to, mm -hmm. to Italy, or, um, or you know, because jobs wouldn't work out and they'd want to try something new. And, um, and I, I was really just floored to think of him standing there in those halls, in, waiting in those lines, uh, you know, to be physically checked in a very respectful way, apparently, uh, you know, they, it's, it's something everyone had to go through together and, and I was kind of heartened to see how, how carefully the records are kept um, at Ellis Island and the, how they, they kept people, um, agents who could speak almost any language of someone coming through and, you know, how, how we tried hard to, we, um, the New York Ellis Island processing tried hard to be humane to a lot of people who were coming here for very desperate reasons. But even so, the trauma of that, of not understanding a word of the language that's being spoken to you, or it, it really created this uh, very overwhelming um, imaginative experience for me. And, and I, I read everything I could about American immigration from all kinds of different places. I would actually recommend a really fantastic book called Guarding the Golden Door. Mm -hmm. If anyone wants a general overview on American immigration uh, around this time, and it, um, well actually it, it starts at the beginning of, of the notion of America and how people have come here um, against or, or in line with our laws about our permeable boundaries. Um, but American immigration history is really fascinating. Um, and the only way I could really capture an authentic experience for these fictional characters was to, to book, book learn as much as possible and then, you know, uh, conduct a bunch of interviews, basically. Yeah. So one more question for you, and it is a question we ask all of the guests on our podcast series. Who is your favorite teacher? I, my favorite teacher of all time is my mother who was um, a sixth grade teacher until she retired in 2013, and uh, who taught me so much, especially about storytelling. Um, but I have 
so very, very many favorite teachers. I, um, I thank a number of them by name in the book. Um, and I especially want to just have a, a call out to um, a woman named Marie Miller. We called her uh, Killer Miller. She was my 10th grade English teacher um, at Simsbury High School in Simsbury, Connecticut, and she was a legend. Um, I had her when she was in her 70s, but she taught well into her 80s, and um, she was really, really extraordinary. And anyone who's listening to this who may have heard of her, um, another graduate of Simsbury High School is Jennifer Weiner, um, who also thanked Mrs. Miller in her first book, Good in Bed. So you can see there's there's definitely been a, a long uh, tradition of, of, of people being having their lives changed by Mrs. Marie Miller. Excellent. Well, Julia and Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Kim. This has just been wonderful. And 